Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. It is another edition of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. My name is Greg Frank. Going to get to myself and Mike Niemer, the eRenewable CEO, in just a minute as we have another guest coming at you hot and heavy. But before we do that, we want to step away. And our buddy over at NEMA, Tim Berrigan, has a few words for us. So let's check in with Tim right now. This is Tim Berrigan, Executive Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks for the opportunity to provide a NEMA News Minute. During the second and third quarters of 2023, NEMA has added 10 new members to our association. A complete list of our members is available at www.nema.com. I am excited to announce that NEMA now has 200 active members in the association. NEMA's spring conference was at the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort and Spa in May. We had 250 attendees, amazing weather, and we received very positive feedback regarding the conference. Registration is now open for NEMA's Fall Conference, which will be at the Logan Hotel in Philadelphia, October 16th through the 18th, 2023. Please reach out to me at tberrigan at nema.com if you'd like more information about the event. Please be on the lookout for your invitation to East Meets West in Vail, Colorado during mid-November. This event sells out. NEMA's board gives our members first shot at registration for the event, so please do not delay in registering if you'd like to attend. A limited number of rooms at the Vail Grand Hyatt will sell out relatively quickly. This year, we have arranged overflow rooms at the Hythe, a Marriott property in Lion's Head Village, which is in close proximity to the Grand Hyatt and also has walking access to a gondola and many restaurants, bars, and shopping. Thanks again for letting us provide this NEMA News Minute. We're looking forward to seeing everyone in Philadelphia in mid-October. And we welcome you into episode 192 of The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable, alongside Mike Niemer. My name is Greg Frank. As we move along, Mike, through the real dog days of summer, I feel like here. Good to see you again. Yeah, nice to be back in the studio. But, yeah, dog days of summer, no truer words are said, man. It's hot out there. Yeah, it's brutal. So... As I said before we jumped on here, I'm looking forward to getting back north and enjoying some cooler weather. But uh, we do have another guest uh, that we wanted to bring your way before uh, I depart. So his name is Jim Blackburn. He is the CEO at B Carbon. Kind enough to join us. Jim, good to see you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Greg. Good to see you guys. Yeah. So uh, we always like to allow our guests some time to tell us a little bit about their background and how they... navigated towards the renewable, sustainable space. So what is your story in that capacity? Well, I'm an environmental lawyer and have been for a long time. I got out of law school in the early 70s and have been an environmental lawyer my whole career, always a regulatory lawyer. And more recently, I mean, I've always taught at Rice University as well. So I've got Rice in my blood. I teach there and I'm very much science oriented. And over the years, I've come to basically become very fascinated with designing the future. And I think we are designing the future these days with all of these interesting concepts of net zero energy, 
uh, blue carbon, green carbon, various types of hydrogen uh, sources. We're getting into all types of interesting futures. And what I'm doing now is really concentrating on creating carbon offsets that are nature-based that are going to be used by companies as they plot their net zero carbon future. So I'm right now finding myself in a fascinating world, no regulation. This is all being done by the voluntary market outside of the government for the most part. And it's one of the most fascinating areas I've ever been in. And at B Carbon, we have written protocols for issuing uh, nature-based carbon credits and also for capping uh, leaking gas wells. And we issue credits, and then those are bought and sold by uh, project developers to buyers out in the commercial market. So it's a very interesting area. When you talk about nature-based credits, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about nature-based versus what the other alternative kind of credits are? Right. Well, it, it's interesting. I'm talking about photosynthesis. Basically, photosynthesis takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turns it into the wood of trees. It puts it into the soil as kind of the deposits that come out of a plant. So grasslands put carbon into the soil. Uh, trees put carbon into the, uh, the wood. We've got in the marshes of the Texas coast put uh, carbon into the soil of the marshes. They're among the most productive sinks. So rather than creating a technology we're using nature's technology, and we're basically organizing people to manage their properties in a way that will increase the amount of carbon being brought down from the atmosphere and stored in our natural system. Side benefit is you get ecology. You get birds and bunnies and all of these things that, that thrive on nature. And it's, on the one hand, incredibly creative. On the other hand, companies are used to thinking in terms of valves and and very compressors and things like that. So how, how they think of nature is part of this learning process because companies are learning to think of nature differently than they did in the past. We're an alternative to something like direct air capture, which is like you bring air through a huge vacuum cleaner and you vacuum out the carbon dioxide with technology. That is something companies feel comfortable with, but it's very expensive. Nature is inexpensive, but it is hard to organize. So our challenge is to get the landowners and to manage the natural system to optimize carbon as opposed to creating a technology that strips it out. Well, that makes sense, but the one thing that I've got to ask is explain to us how you actually measure. You've got a forestry, mm -hmm. and how are you measuring annually how much carbon credits that forestry earn the buyer? Well, literally, you go out with a tape measure, and you tape the, the uh, perimeter, the circumference of any number of trees within, a, say, an acre. So you get a good cross-section of the trees in your acre. You get those as your base measurements to begin with. You come back a year later or two years later or three years later, and you measure again. And you see the increase in size, and then we can do computations that'll take that increase in size of the measurement and translate it into tons of carbon that are stored per acre per year. 
Okay, so when you talked about uh, the soil measurements, I guess you're taking soil samples. That's correct. On an annualized or every two or three year basis. Right. We start off by taking a, and statistics are real important here because you've got to get your statistics right. But you take a probe, you go down into the soil, you pull it out and you take it to the lab and you get two measurements. You get the soil organic carbon measurement and you get a measurement of something called soil density. And those are the two factors that allow you to compute tons of carbon per acre. That's your starting point. You come back, say, five years later, you measure your soil organic carbon and the soil density, do your calculations, and that increase, that delta, is what we're allowing to be sold. So if somebody came in, do you actually, when you're up and fully running with B-carbon, do you issue B-carbon credits? That's correct. We will issue B-carbon certified credits, possibly through a third-party uh, issuer that will have a blockchain and will keep up with the transactions and we want to follow that credit all the way through the sales so that we can identify when that credit is actually used by somebody that's called retirement and then when it's retired we will have a if you own the register kind of a red flag will go up and that's the end of the life of that credit. Yeah, and that prevents people from selling more than one credit for one land one piece of land, right? Absolutely. And I mean Fraud is always a possibility in something like this, so we want to keep good records. We want to make sure that we're working toward digital monitoring, reporting, and verification so that there will be a way to mark on a, uh, on a chart the uh, full extent of the credits that have been issued and on what basis have they been verified, and all of that will be available for the buyer to see before they purchase. Because once you get that blockchain attached to that credit, it's my understanding, once anybody touches that credit or tries to open the credit, everybody gets notified. There's a notification system that the blockchain has been broken and something's up or well, something's well, changed, and, right? And, and Well, generally, you shouldn't be able to break into that blockchain. It should be a secure system, but it does allow penetration in terms of visual inspection of information about the credit to different parties. Uh, but if you, if, if you bought a credit from us when it's on the blockchain and then you wanted to sell it to Mike, then Mike could see into that credit for on what basis was it set, what, how is it verified, you know, is it based on measurement, is it based on computer analysis. We've stayed away from just pure computer projections, and we require measured data for our credits. How much have you really refined your process here? I mean, you've run through all the steps there. It does seem like you guys kind of have your process where you want it to be. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? I think it's fair to say we're always learning. Yeah. I think we, you know, we have a strong science background. We are working through the Baker Institute at Rice University to begin with. We're working with soil scientists from all over the world, basically, and also now timber specialists from around the world, wetland experts from around the world. And we, we're bringing in, we, we think our strong suit is science. We're, we're strong on science. We're strong on measurement. What we've been to told by buyers is they want to know what they're buying. They want to make sure that they're buying something real. And so measurement is, as far as we're concerned, the science of measurement and, frankly, rapid measurement. We're trying to get cheaper. We're trying to understand uh, remote sensing and how that can fit in. I mean, it's hard to remote sense into the soil. So, you know, we're still taking uh, plugs out of the soil and taking it to the laboratory. We'd love to get rid of that process and go to cheaper uh, kind of uh, more efficient processes. Right now, we're still doing soil sampling because we hadn't solved that one. So can you give us an idea 
on a forestry, how many uh, tons of carbon credit? Is there a, kind of a number that you can get at per acre? What's the common number? I mean, uh, how, I, how, do, how does not only Greg and I, but the listeners get a visualization as to <laughs> what that's worth? It's a tricky question you ask. It varies by type of forest, by type of trees, but say somewhere between two and four tons of carbon dioxide per acre per year would be a reasonable range to look at. I've seen numbers higher. I've seen numbers lower. Um, We're real interested in mesquite in South Texas and cedar in the hill country, which are considered uh, trash species that people are getting rid of. We're trying to figure out you know, is there carbon sequestration going on in those areas at a rate that would justify keeping them and basically measuring those increases and selling carbon credits off of a different management concept? But two to four tons an acre, the price of carbon in Europe is in excess of 60 euros per ton. Uh, you get two or three of those per acre per year, you're beginning to talk about some money. The market is not that high in the United States yet. I would say 10 to $20 a ton would be a reasonable range now. There's been uh, several of the credit programs um, kind of have blown up. There have been some scandals in the uh, nature-based uh, credit market. That has cut knocked prices down in the short term. But I think in the long term, we'll be seeing a rise to, I would, you know, we're hopeful that it'll be in excess of $30 per ton in the next few years. And that's, that's the rate at which a lot of landowners get interested yeah, I bet. And, you know, with the, the uh, more and more public companies and private companies interested in ESG and interested in being more sustainable, okay, there's a real drive for that net zero by 2050. So I think your assumption of people wanting the credits and the price going up, I think that will probably happen. But then people also, and I don't know, Jim, if you can have any thoughts on this, I've also had people to talk to me about the real zero, not just net zero. Do you ever get in those kind of discussions, the difference between net zero and real zero? Well, you know, I've been into variations. I'm not quite sure what you mean about real zero, but we're having people talk about, I mean, there's net zero for what are called scopes one and two. That's the stuff you directly emit from your facility and the electricity you use, what the emissions are. Scope one is your emissions. Scope two is from the electricity. Scope three is on the supply chain. So you have some people talking about, well, we're going to be net zero, but only for scopes one and two. If anybody is talking about being uh, net zero for scopes one, two, and three, they're talking about net zero products all of a sudden. That's a whole new dimension. Then there are those that are talking about being net negative which is basically to take more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than you're putting into the atmosphere. Uh, This is where nature really comes in, is, you know, once we start moving beyond, I mean, I'd like to see every company internally figure out ways to handle their carbon footprint. You know, companies are going to try to come up with other sources, renewable energy sources, for example. They're going to try to get more efficient. There's going to be all sorts of pressure to reduce your carbon footprint internally. There's likely to be a gap. Uh, A lot of companies have promised by 2030 to have a 50% reduction in their carbon emissions. They may not get there. Nature-based carbon will be a very reasonable alternative to look to to supplement these other tools. When people bring up greenwashing to you, how do you think those words play in to your carbon credits? Well, it's an interesting concept, greenwashing. It's marketing. 
on the one hand. Uh, so it's talking positively about what you're doing. But there's a point at which your talk exceeds your performance. And I think of true greenwashing as being you're talking a green ball game, but you're not doing anything. I've got a net zero goal, but I haven't reduced any carbon. I can't prove to you any reductions. Uh, those are the things I think of greenwashing. I, I think that there's uh, some people that would call uh, carbon credits generally a form of greenwashing. And you haven't stopped your emissions, but you are offsetting them by doing something else. I think that's actually a reasonable form of pollution control. And so I don't think pollution control is quote-unquote greenwashing, but I do think there will be a, an attempt by all of the companies to put these programs they're, they're pursuing in the best possible light. Uh, so be, will it be used in a green marketing way? Sure. Uh, but will it be incorrect? Will it be a misrepresentation? Could be, but I, you know, I think correctly done, no. Well, you actually uh, described it as I see it also. I think carbon credits, renewable energy credits, all that is necessary for any company to reach their mandated goals. To the people that I've talked to or heard talk about real zero means that they've actually physically changed things inside their company and they're not polluting any. Right. And they're not having to buy a credit at all. I think that's unrealistic to think a company can truly get to real zero if it's a real major size company. Well, I, I think that's almost impossible. I think that's impossible as long as we continue to use hydrocarbons. And I think we will continue to use hydrocarbons long into the future. I think it is a transition that we're looking at. The circular economy is, I think, the economy of the future, which is where we're much more concerned about recycling. We're uh, looking to eliminate waste. We're looking to reuse as much as we can. And I think you know, this concept of carbon footprinting, of uh, carbon neutral operations, moving towards zero, I think all of that's consistent with the long-term circular economy evolution that we're going to be seeing, uh, particularly in chemicals. That's happening rapidly. So when you talk more about that long-term evolution, I'm just wondering where you see B-carbon going the rest of the decade and, and kind of you, you've talked about how you're always learning and trying to evolve with the times. Like what do the next five-ish years or so you think look like for B-carbon? I think we'll have huge growth in the carbon market. We have a blue, uh, living shoreline blue carbon uh, program for the Texas coast. We have had an investor commit $500 million to building living shorelines on the coast. Our wetlands on the Texas coast hold tremendous amount of carbon in the soil, and they sequester tremendous amount of carbon every year. They are in danger of being killed from sea level rise. They will be drowned unless we do something. We're proposing to build essentially uh, oyster reefs in front of the shorelines of these wetlands, protect them from erosion, and keep that carbon that's in the wetlands from being released, and trapping sediment that would allow the marsh to keep up with the sea level rise. That is a, uh, a project that has captured the attention of a lot of people, particularly on the Texas coast, but we have a, an investor uh, that is committed to building these living shorelines that is currently looking into uh, getting contracts to start work. Um, we're looking at millions of tons of blue carbon, coastal blue carbon credits being issued in the next several years. We will be doing a lot of uh, credits for methane well capping. 
Our soil credit program is growing slowly. Testing takes time. So we anticipate if, if we can get breakthroughs in testing technology, which I think are coming, then we will see an acceleration of soil carbon credits, and we think forest carbon will be a steady growth area as well. In the long term, we're looking at a commercial timber credit for, for following the timber through the sawmill all the way to the home or building that it is ultimately used in. And so a, a buyer of the carbon credit can be told your carbon is now stored at uh, 2516 Albans Road, and that's where your carbon is stored. Uh, we see that type of, if you will, bookkeeping, accounting of carbon flows occurring all over this system. Fascinating. I'm so glad that an alum of this show, Jane Stricker, who's on your board, uh, put the two of us together and that you could come onto our show. Thank you so much. But I want you to talk about you also are involved with the Houston Greater Partnership with regards to being working with B Carbon and right. your association. Tell a little bit about that relationship. Well, the Greater Houston Partnership is committed to uh, the energy transition for the Houston region. Uh, Bobby Tudor, who is president of the partnership and is also associated uh, forever with Rice University, uh, Bobby Tudor talked about publicly, really for the first time in January of 2020, Houston leading the transition to an energy future that's different than it was back at the turn of the century. And what we're doing at B Carbon is part of that energy transition. What uh, people that are doing that are working on blue and uh, green hydrogen, what people are doing that are trying to capture carbon at the smokestack and send it deep underground. Everybody that is doing in these types of things are working on this energy transition. And I think it will be Houston's defining trademark for the 21st century, much like being the energy capital of the world, was the trademark of the 20th century. It is a new century. It is a different environment. It is a different ecology. It is a different economic system. No doubt about it. It is a new frontier on the energy front. There's no doubt about that. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Green Insider today. We appreciate your time, and you're always welcome back. Right. Mike, Greg, thank you for having me. Absolutely. There's Jim Blackburn, the CEO of B Carbon, joining us here on episode 192 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast from, because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day. And we were responsible for today's lesson. For Mike Niemer, I'm Greg Frank. Everybody enjoy the rest of your weeks, and we'll talk to you on episode 193.